What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we'd like to say thank you to our sponsors today. That's all of our wonderful patrons out there in the world that are supporting this show. We'd like to say a big thank you to our patrons this week. That's Daniel McLagan and Sage Gordon Davis. We are very grateful to have you folks. And if you'd like to join Daniel and Sage in supporting this show, you can get tons of extra bonuses and goodies. Just pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Mr. Stay, we are kind of going back into lockdown, aren't we? What's going on? Oh, I don't know, mate. I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but it's... um. It's a strange old world. It is. Strange We're old living world. in very, very strange times. I think what's really fascinating right now is there's a lot of writers out there who are drawing from all these experiences of that happening. And I'm sure we're going to see lots of interesting stories coming out, which are going to be influenced by what we're all experiencing right now. And I bet you there's tons already on Amazon that have already been written and are out there. But it's going to be really interesting to see how it shapes people's writing with this experience of isolation and shrinkage and lack of socialization. Well, well funny enough, the author, we, we've got fantastic author that we're talking to uh, in our special interview this week. And he was one of the first ones I interviewed post-lockdown because we had a huge backlog. I did a whole ton of people in the first quarter of the year knowing that I had the film coming up. And um, so, uh, you know, we went through that backlog and he was one of the first. And I interviewed someone today as well for a fantastic episode we've got coming in a, a, just a few weeks. Um and they've been in lockdown and one of them has a novel that was inspired really by the sense of isolation she got in lockdown. So there's a little treat for you in a few weeks. This is, uh, this is this really, really interesting interview. Top secret, not saying who it Very is. Very interesting. <laughs> and actually we should lead with a celebration that we're going to be having in, in just a couple of weeks because we are going to be celebrating. Dun, dun, dun. Four is it four I years? Can't believe it. Four <laughs> years of the podcast. Four years. Good grief. Yeah. So I mean, the thing is, we could have written four books together in well, that we could time, have done. but we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we knew for our own sanity that just the one was probably enough. But my goodness, a lot has happened. But if you would like to join us, if you'd like to join us for a live recording of our fourth celebration, then get on and join us as a, a patron because we're going to be inviting all our patrons and all our academates from the Bestseller Academy to join us for that celebration. And that's going to be happening in, well, at the time of recording, it's going to be happening kind of uh, mid-October. So look look out for that particular Monday. Um, but if it'll be recorded a few days before. 
before then. So do do join us if you want to do that. It's going to be interesting. We're going to we're going to be kind of doing an ask us anything, but we're also doing probably a four year review. A four year. Do you know what four years is also the equivalent of? It's kind of bonkers to no, think a, a president. Or a prime minister. <laughs> We've done the equivalent. Oh my god! We've done the yeah. equivalent because remember when we when we started the podcast, we it- we've made podcasts great again. <laughs> It's kind of interesting because all the podcasts for anyone who start who just stumbled across us and people do stumble across us on you know, iTunes or this podcast kind of started in the midst of the last US general election. We had Brian Cranston on the show, episode seven, I think he came on, and we had this massive blow up where our podcast became international news along with Brian Cranston <laughs> because of some comments he said about a certain future prior president of the US. And it's kind of interesting that we're kind of. We're hitting these. We're we're hitting these milestones at the same time when all this is happening. So I hope there's not some weird synergy that's going on, and whether we're responsible for um, how the world's turning. <laughs> Who knows? Wouldn't that be terrible? That's funny, but anyway, parallel universes and all that. It's been three years almost since we we released our book, so we're coming up Back to, to a three-year anniversary of Back to Reality, which in itself I can't even believe that. That's bonkers. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's officially backlist. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the backlist. Yeah, uh, but still going yeah. strong. I mean, five star reviews. I mean, this is the great thing, folks. If you haven't finished a book, our job is to get you to the end because once it's out there, you get to enjoy its the book's journey for maybe the rest of your life. You just never know. Getting new. I mean, you know, it's great to see new reviews. Um, it's great to see you know things like the audio book that happened and all these different milestones and i still i still i have it here and obviously you can't see on the podcast but in the little background i've got my little back to reality book sitting on my bookshelf yeah on my little windowsill uh, actually where a bear ran past not just more than <laughs> three days ago i was literally sitting in my studio for people that can't visualize this this is out in my garden i had a black bear run within about five feet of me it didn't know it was in the actual i was actually in the in the studio but my goodness did it give me a fright i've never seen a bear in the garden ever scared the bejeebas out of me <laughs> we we get excited when we see a rabbit right i remember living oh, in the yeah. it's like oh there's a fox in the garden again oh yeah this yeah, was yeah. a that's bear a rabbit. <laughs> that ran past my studio and then decided to head off and climb a fence and disappear into the distance thankfully meanwhile my little cat Ginny was outside the, the door of the studio and went up on her haunches as if she was about to take it on. I was like, I, was, I opened the door and was like, gee, get inside. And it's like, and then she bolted for the other direction. Bless her. But yeah, this is real life drama. Wow. You're, on a, you're, you're wow. on a movie set. I'm in my garden. There's equals amount of action happening. Bonkers. Yeah, well, at least we can call cut. You're good. You, you know, the the bear doesn't obey direction. <laughs> exactly. Doesn't take direction well. No. no. Do no. you know? Funny enough, Shannon Mayer, who we had on the show um, a number of times, phenomenal indie author. If you haven't listened to any of her interviews with us, you've got to go back and listen. The first ever book I read of her in the very first chapter was based on Vancouver Island, where I am, and it was a bear attack. <laughs> so that always goes into my head when I. When I'm walking around the big forests here, I'm thinking of that scene that she wrote. It was one of the, I think, one of her very first books. She wrote a bear, bear attack, as obviously inspired by where we live, which is which is bonkers. But um, anyway, on to more um, less dramatic or maybe more dramatic things. How's everything going in your life this week? It's been a bit of a interesting few days for you. 
Yeah, uh, we're starting to see assemblies of the film now. So that's where the editor puts together a very, very rough cut of the scene. So we've had the dailies. The dailies are where they just take the best takes of each scene. So you might get two or three different takes of the same scene. And that's where, you know, you see this on DVD, Blu-ray extras, you know, where you get the clapper world action. And then you see the actors do their thing, cut. And then the actors go, is that right? Happy with that? Blah, blah, blah. You know, that sort of thing. But the assemblies are where the editor has actually put the scene together. So we're now seeing the movie become a movie. And this is such an important lesson to learn for screenwriters. This is where you have to let go of the script. You know, the the script is just a document. It's not, you know, it's not Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, you know, the Ten Commandments. It, you have to adapt and change. And what's interesting, I've been having conversations with John and he's been saying, actually, you know, we don't need this scene. We don't need that scene. Because when you watch the film, you realize, oh, okay, yeah, just having those two things in juxtaposition tells the story. And it's interesting that juxtaposition is such, particularly in cinema more than any other medium, is all about storytelling. Have you ever heard of a thing called the Kuleshov effect? No. Okay. Early Russian filmmaker, a chap called Kuleshov, he discovered this thing where you you take a, a neutral shot of a person's face. So if I was to take a shot of you just staring at the camera completely impassively, completely emotionless, okay? And then I cut next to that a bowl of soup. That says he's hungry. If I cut between you and, you know, a grave, he's mourning. If it cuts between you and say a beautiful woman, he's in love. It's the coolest is putting these two things together in juxtaposition and that tells story. You can't necessarily do that with books. You might be able to do it in theater, but cinemas, that's the, that's the grammar of cinema. And it's one of these things that you can't always see on the page when you're writing a screenplay. But once the edit starts to come together and the film starts to come together and you start, it becomes a whole different beast. And that's where the film is now. It's now this thing that you watch on a screen and it's great. It's you always learn so much just from thinking, yeah, I didn't need that scene. I didn't need that exchange. And I'll remember that for next time. And again, we've had that thing. I mentioned this in Robot Overlords where we, where we have, um, Gillian Anderson just did half a page of dialogue with a look. And we've had the same thing with our leading lady, who, again, I'm not allowed to name names yet. I think we're going to announce all the names when we've finished shooting. So, you know, we've got an amazing cast and they can wipe out half a page of my dialogue with just a look, which I'm happy <laughs> about. I'm totally delighted I'll about. I'll tell you what, how yeah. brilliant is it that you get to have that kind of full loop experience? Because I know there's a lot of people out there. In fact, we had a big win this week, didn't we, from somebody on the Academy. Matt in the Academy said that he's getting um, – one of his one of his stories narrated for the first time, which is a huge win. It's kind of like one of those moments where you get the, you get to hear the orchestra play your song, and it must be so great for you as a screen screenwriter, as a scriptwriter, to actually have that experience of seeing what actually happens. Because I guess there's so many people out there rooting scripts, they've never had that experience of seeing it go to a movie and learning from that. Well, it's it's still quite a new thing as well because we didn't have this on Robot Overlords. I could visit. Because the editor was on set, so you could sit down with him. Uh, on this one, it's a she, uh, but and he might show you a few scenes if he's not too busy. But what we have now is an app. Oh, really? So it's in. all like through yeah. an app on yeah. online. 
Yeah. Wow. And I can, and I tell you what, that first week this thing came out, my writing went out the window. <laughs> I was like, because I thought, was it oh, like I've got refreshing got, the Kindle got, page. I've got to do my word count, but I, I'll just, I'll just have a quick look at what they shot of my film yesterday. <laughs> and, and you sit there and you go, <laughs> you sit there clapping to yourself like a giggling oh, idiot wow. as, as you see just how good these actors are, how well it's lit. Uh, the, there's some brilliant special effects. It's because horror movie, you know, yeah. it's bits of blood and gore yeah, yeah. and stuff. Uh, and it's just like, you sit there cackling to yourself. It's like, oh, I've got to write something else now. But yeah, it's great. That's it's such a treat. Such an absolute Kid treat. in a sweet shop. That's what I, oh, that's I, what you, I see yeah. when I yeah. see you talking about this. I love it. Absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. Well, can't wait to see what happens. It's, um, it's an incredible, it's an incredible story. And it's just brilliant fun to catch up with you every couple of weeks and find out how it's all going. And, uh, yeah. Stay tuned. I, stay tuned, folks, <laughs> for more. Um, one other thing we're going to mention just before we dive into our, our interview with today's, with today's best-selling author is we are celebrating, as we mentioned, right towards the end of the last show that we did, actually. So some of you may not have caught it. Uh, especially if it was kids' bedtime. That's always when my podcast seemed to stop. <laughs> but we were celebrating reaching 10 million words on our BXP 2020 yeah. challenge, like 200 words a day. So we want to thank everyone. If you didn't hear that announcement last uh, two weeks ago, we want to thank everyone who's written and banked their words with the 200 word a day challenge. And to celebrate, we're building up to another big year next year. This is not going to be a one-shot wonder. But to celebrate... We're going to be launching actually today when this podcast goes live, we're launching the new 200 words a day, five day challenge. So if you're warming up for NaNoWriMo maybe in November, or if you are just thinking of writing your book or you're getting, wanting to get back into writing, or you've been struggling during COVID and you, if you've lost that writing habit, we want to challenge you to try the 200 word a day challenge for five days from Monday to a Friday or, you know, five consecutive days. If you want to start on a Wednesday to a Sunday, that's fine as well, but come along to the website, come along to bxp2020.com and sign up and see if you can write a thousand words in a week, because believe you me, we have some incredible stories. We already have had quite a lot of amazing stories on the podcast, but there are so many stories out that we haven't yet covered about people who've done this challenge. Um, and you know, took them what 15 years to write their first book, took them four months to write their second book, new authors writing books in three months, other authors getting back into the groove. One, one, one author who's written consecutively now for nearly 300 days in a row. This is utterly mind blowing. So if you want to be a part of that, if you want to have a taste of how this works and you want to kickstart your, your daily writing habit. And remember what we're trying to do here is give you the writing habit for life. This is not just about the five days. It's about an introduction to how you can make writing part of your daily life and become a phenomenal author. Then come along to the bxb2020.com website and sign up. That's going to be a lot I think, of fun. I think it's such a good idea. It's f just five days. Give it a go and you'll be hooked. You'll be absolutely hooked. Absolutely. You know? So yeah, Brilliant go stuff. for it, folks. Now, go for today it. we have a, a really wonderful interview, Mr. State. Give us the lowdown on today's guest. Well, today's guest is Charles Stross. He's a science fiction writer of six Hugo-nominated novels and winner of the 2005, 2010, and 2014 Hugo Awards for Best Novella. He's won all sorts of other awards and been translated into 12 other languages. He's written over 20 books, including the Eschaton series, The Merchant Princes, The Laundry Files, The Haunting Stain, Saturn's Children. He's written a lot of series. And if you 
are writing a series or if you're thinking about writing a series, whatever the genre, you're definitely going to want to listen to this interview. Some top tips. Brilliant stuff. So let's dive in to listen to Mark chatting with Charles Stross. Charles Stross, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm about as well as everybody is in lockdown, (laughs) (laughs) which I've been in semi-voluntarily for two months now, and it's getting old. Yes, the the novelty wore off quite some time ago, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. Have you been writing during lockdown? Because we've we've seen there's there's two camps. There are people who are, you know, knocking out thousands of words per day, and there are some people. And this was myself at the beginning, curled into a little ball who couldn't put pen to paper. Has it been productive for you? Somewhere in between. Okay. Now disclaimer. Right before lockdown began, I had just finished the death march to the end of the fifth rewrite of a book that was originally due out in 2015. (laughs) So I was feeling pretty drained. And then I had to turn around a bunch of page proofs in two weeks for a different book. So I haven't been writing very much because burnout from previous book plus proofreading. Having said that, I'm beginning to get back to work on a project, but I'm finding it hard to work. I'm probably performing at about 10 to 20 percent of normal. But let's talk about your new novel, Dead Lies Dreaming, which is set in the Laundry Files universe, but has all new characters and readers can jump in here. And I just, here's the opening line, listeners. This will give you a taste of of what you're in for. The opening line is, Imp froze as he rounded the corner onto Regent Street and saw four elven warriors shackling a Santa to a stainless steel cross outside Hamley's toy shop. <laughs> Can you tell us about Dead Lies Dreaming and where that came from? Uh, yeah, Dead Lies Dreaming was never supposed to happen in the first place. Let's rewind a little. I've been writing The Laundry Files since 1998, actually. As with all long-running series, the author at the end of it is not the same as the author at the beginning of it. And it's not the same world we were in originally either. It started out as sort of a lightweight spy thriller meets Lovecraftian horror come urban fantasy, sort of, specifically pastiching various uh, spy thriller authors. The first one was a Len Dayton novel, the second was Ian Fleming. But after a while, it sort of took on a life of its own. And then something really, really, really weird happened in 2016, the referendum for Brexit. And I realised at that point that satire was dead, and I really couldn't keep writing a novel about civil service comedy in the vein of Yes Minister with Tentacles, without doing a major pivot. So I retargeted the eighth laundry novel, The Delirium Brief, and it it basically turns into a very British coup by the tentacle monsters. (laughs) At the end of that book, Nialat Hotep, the black pharaoh, the crawling chaos, is the new prime minister in number 10 Downing Street. And as we learn in the next novel, The motto of the new management is strong and stable, and it doesn't get much stronger and more stable than an elder god. (laughs) So I then began asking myself, what would the civilians be doing in this sort of setting? It's set in 2015 in a world where things have gone much, much worse than they have even in our world. Now, as I said, this book wasn't supposed to get written. I was really meant to be redrafting the space opera that was due in 2017 and that got derailed by my father dying. This was in 2018. Only my mother became very ill. She went into hospital and spent three months in a neurology ward and was then discharged to a 24-hour nursing home facility. And obviously when your parents are dying, that really 
does a number on any project you've got in hand at the time. That's why the space opera is even longer overdue than it was before. Both my parents died during the, during the process. This one, while I was derailed, I was commuting between Edinburgh and Leeds every single weekend by train, which takes it out of you. It was taking me a day or so to recover afterwards for each trip. It was eating half my life. And I just could not commit to doing anything with a deadline or anything with a book advance attached because it was obviously going to go out the window when the inevitable happened. And indeed, my mother did die last year. So she's avoided the current COVID-19 mess, which is probably a good thing. Sorry, sorry to get morbid on you. Anyway, while I was doing this commute, I just, after a month or so, I gave myself a license to write whatever the hell I felt like without any time commitment, without any book contract, without anything up front. And much to my surprise, six to nine months later, I had an unscheduled novel. I saw in an interview elsewhere, you said novels don't come, I mean, you've, you're incredibly prolific, but you, you can't just bang these out in a few weeks, can you? You, you take your time. What, what is your process? What is your method? Um, flail around madly looking for new ideas. I'm very much high concept driven and I don't write to formula. This is problematic because there's no easy off the shelf skeleton I can just bung a few new names and places into. I've got to reinvent the wheel with every single book. Having said that, sometimes it all comes together in a flash ridiculously fast. One of my novels got written in first draft and was published substantially unchanged in just 18 days. Another of them, though, took four and a half to five years to come together. And I wrote several, wrote and published several other books in the process. It just took so much time I kept having to stop and think. It was Accelerando, which was originally published as a series of nine novellas. And it took five years to come out because it needed the five years to generate the ideas. Each of those nine chapters had about half the idea content of a normal hard SF novel. Right. The one you wrote in 18 days and the ones you've taken five years to write. Why did one come so quickly? Why did one come so slowly? Or is it just, uh, I mean, 18 days is, is, is astonishing. What was that experience like? Frightening, actually. Yeah. Flip side, it was 18 days after two and a half months of being unable to write due to circumstances. Initially, I was on a foreign trip and doing tourism stuff and not writing because I was in hotel rooms and trying to get my monies off out of being in Australia and Malaysia. Then I came home, had to turn around tax return in a hurry. Then I was off to a writer's workshop in Estonia where something got me and I came down with Bell's palsy for much. My face was oh hemilaterally paralyzed and I couldn't read. So I went a bit crazy when it wore off after about 10 weeks and I just my head was spinning and I just had a very simple, very coherent idea for a book, another Laundry Files novel as it happened. So to that extent, the setting was entirely off the shelf. I knew my protagonists intimately. I knew the mechanisms. I knew the mechanics. I didn't necessarily know the plot, but the rest of it came together fairly fast. So, you know, it was like the world's worst case of literary constipation coming to an end. You know what happens at the end of that? <laughs> Yes, the X-Lax method. What's, what's amazing is you've written 
all these different series, the, the Eschaton series, the Merchant Princes, the Laundry Files, the Haunting State, Saturn's Children, they're very diverse series. Everyone is distinct. One's a space opera. You've got alt history. Uh, you've got your, you know, bankers and tentacles and, and communist space squid and that sort of thing. The the thing we hear again and again from authors, certain best-selling authors as well, is, you know, you know stick to one series, keep selling that, or stick to one series character. Do you ever get uh, a tap on the shoulder from agents, and, and or are you tempted yourself to, to do more of the same, you know, the same but different? I am permanently under pressure to do more of the same, more of a series. The thing is, when you're selling a book, you're not selling direct to the public, you're selling to an editor. They're gatekeepers. You do not get through the publishing house without the editor championing you. And your editor is not there to edit so much as to manage publishing workflow. And for them to get the book in front of the public, they've got to go through, run the gauntlet of marketing. And they therefore have to have a story they can explain to the marketing department who will sell it to the bookstores. I mean, this is how it used to work. It's totally different for self-publishing or online. But basically, it's like feeding somebody across the table with chopsticks. So the easiest story an editor can tell the marketing department is it's a sequel to the last one. You've got the sales figures. You know exactly what to do here. Now, in general, it's a sad fact of life in publishing. It happens in comics as well. But in general, with a series, each episode loses 20 to 40 percent of sales relative to its predecessor. A series is successful if each episode sells 100% as many copies as the one before. A series is wildly successful if sales escalate. So you see an awful lot of trilogies with only two books out because sales dwindled and the publisher cut it off at the knees. If your sales are static, they will buy more of it because they know they can sell more indefinitely on the backlist as long as there's new stuff coming. And if your sales are growing, they will push back very hard against you ever doing anything different. I had to discontinue the Eschaton books after two books when I realized there were inconsistencies of the background and I couldn't really write a third. Um, Again, I'm world building driven and I realized it was structurally unsound. They would have taken more. The two series I've got, though, that I'm able to sustain are Merchant Princes, where there's a second series. I've handed in the third book in the Empire Games trilogy which should be out next year, and The Laundry Files. Deadlight's Dreaming, my original concept was it wouldn't even be part of The Laundry Files because The Laundry doesn't appear in it anywhere, but it's going to be marketed as Laundry Files because that's what sells. It's a story for the marketing department. Hopefully the readers won't be too put off by not recognising any of the characters. But as we said earlier, Deadlight's Dreaming, all new characters, re- new readers can jump in, which I guess is a, a great way of sustaining a series but keeping it fresh yeah series entry points are important once you've got more about five books in a series it becomes very difficult for a new reader to get on board we see publishers doing stuff like discounting the first volume in ebook indefinitely but it's not really ideal if there's nothing quite as daunting as being told here's a really good series oh there's only 14 books in it so far (laughs) the laundry files itself The original book is an entry point, the Atrocity Archives. Book five, the Rhesus Chart, is an entry point. That's a vampire one I mentioned. It's a point at which the style of the series takes a left turn. Book seven, the Nightmare Stacks, is an entry point. And Deadlight's Dreaming was really the start of an entirely new series. 
but I'm trying to keep it to one entry point every three books maximum at this point, simply because otherwise it's too difficult for new readers. The Merchant Princess books, the first series, they were meant to be big, fat, techno-thrillerish books and got sold as cut in half and sold with sort of thin high fantasy branding. The version sold in the UK is reassembled in omnibuses, which are much closer to how I intended them. The sequel is a trilogy, and it's mostly new characters. I mean, the original protagonist shows up, but she's to some extent backgrounded. My internal elevator pitch was Merchant Princess of the Next Generation. It picks the story up 17 to 18 years later. And um, again, this is part of get a new entry point for new readers. Mm. Yeah. it's uh, you've, you've got these ongoing series and they're running in parallel with each other. Do you have a system in place to keep tabs on them? You know, you must have a long stream of characters and places and incidents uh, that, you know, do you keep them in your head or do you have, what sort of filing system do you have? Do you, do you have a wiki, anything like that? I'm a pantser, not a plotter. The result is there's no wiki, there is no world book. I'm not going to do a Peter Hamilton on you and publish my notes. <laughs> um, I wish I could because I'm now middle-aged and suffering from middle-aged memory problems. <laughs> um, the way to do it, in my experience, is thin the herd periodically, massacre a whole bunch of your characters. You have a red <laughs> wedding. The original Merchant Princess series ends with me carpet bombing the equivalent of Middle Earth with B-52s. <laughs> You know, nothing shuts down a whole bunch of plot lines like a nuclear war. The Laundry Files is a bit different. To some extent, I'm a bit closer to it and more immersed in it. It has an ensemble viewpoint cast, though. And my current plan is another couple of books and maybe a novella or two to end the main series. Deadlines Dreaming is the spin-up of the new series because I like the world too much. But I don't want to be lumbered with, so, with 20 years worth of backstory, characters and continuity. Mm. No, exactly. That's a lot to keep in one's head, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's impossible. I've... Also, I'm not the same person I was when I started it. I started it when I was 34, working as a programmer in a dot-com startup in Edinburgh. Uh, since then, well, I'm now 55. I've got married. I have middle-aged health issues. I, um, both my parents have gone. I've been working as a full-time novelist for 20 years. It's kind of difficult. I'm not the same person I was when I began. I can't easily continue. If I kept on trying to write the original series, I'd be writing fanfic of my younger self. Yes. Which yeah. kind of lacks appeal. Yeah. Is there any advice that you would give young Charles as he started out in this career? Keep notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't ever, ever, ever propose to write a project that you're not in love with, because if you do, you run the risk of being stuck with it for five or 10 years for the money, doing something you don't like. And you don't want to go there. If you if you need to earn a living doing something you don't like, become an accountant. Mm, no, that's uh, very, very good. I've been there myself. That's very good advice. I have a, uh, I have a listener question from Mimo Saar, who asks, I'm always very interested to hear about time management. How much time does Charles spend with new ideas, editing, work in progress, marketing, publicity. So how do you break your day up? Do you do a lot a certain time for writing? No, I'm pretty random, actually. I discovered about five, ten years ago, I was spending 30 hours a week working at the business of being a writer without writing anything. <laughs> um, the writing got done in my spare time. These days, 
I'm a lousy person to ask for advice because I've got an established career going back 20 years. I have my reader base. There's a term of art you hear in publishing, big name author. What it means is the author's name is in a typeface on the covers of their books that's larger than the title because the author is the marketing brand. I've hit the point where people... People who like my stuff will buy the next Charles Stross book, Sight Unseen. Therefore, I don't need to market at them. What I do need to do is to keep changing, keep trying to reinvent myself. The object of emulation there is David Bowie, <laughs> yeah. who changed himself every decade. He didn't get boring. He didn't get bored either. I should actually be doing a whole lot more marketing than I am. But as I said, I've been distracted for the past three years three, four years due to parents dying, which takes the edge of it. In fact, coming on and doing this podcast and a whole bunch more is part of me trying to restart everything and get back in the public eye. So yeah, I should be doing more of the business side of it than I am. Flip side, the writing, I'm a bit like a geezer. Um, pressure builds up underground until it finally has to come out somewhere. And uh, the rate of production seems to average about one and a half novels a year over the very long term of about a decade or more. This sounds very prolific to some people, but really it's not. There's always somebody more prolific than you. Was it Frank Richardson who wrote the Billy Bunter books and a whole bunch of others? He was, and a bunch of other pseudonyms. He was writing from about 1910 through 1960. He pretty much wrote 70% of the entire English public school genre. <laughs> it's estimated he wrote 60 to 70 million words in his career. He hammered these out on manual typewriters, on Underwoods, and he basically broke them. Mm. We're talking somebody who broke large lumps of cast iron through <laughs> typing. I, I recently had to work on a project which was the complete Mark Twain, and that that is 2.7 million words. That is a lot of words to put together. So it's, uh, yeah. Oh, there's... that's nothing. <laughs> I know one author currently active. Naming no names, but she has multiple pseudonyms and has multiple wins in the Hugos and Nebulas, mm -hmm. so she's not a nobody, who averages 2.2 million words a year. Wow. Crikey. We're all psychers, um, aren't we? <laughs> that book I did in 18 days flat left me flat on my back for a month afterwards recovering. Yes. During those 18 days, I was averaging her regular sustained output. <laughs> So there's always somebody more prolific than you are. There is. I just I, finally, I just want to end. You said you don't, you didn't want to give advice for writers because you started out so long ago. But I'm gonna. I found a quote from you, mm -hmm. uh, and you said about the only eternally valid advice I can offer is to echo Robert A. Heinlein: write stuff, finish what you start, send it out, and don't wait for it to come back before you write something else. That that is that is pretty evergreen, isn't it? That was advice he gave going back to the 1930s, and I'm pretty sure that Charles Dickens would have recognised it as well, uh, because if you don't if you don't finish it, nobody's gonna nobody wants to publish it. If you don't send it out, nobody can read it and publish it. And if you wait for it to come back, what are you going to do if it gets rejected 20 times in a row before it goes bestseller? I mean, look at Stephen Donaldson or J.K. Rowling. Their first novels were rejected an inordinate number of times before they sold. You could write one book and end up waiting 20 years for it to be published. No, just start writing the next immediately. The advice I'd add to that is vary your output. 
I went for a period of doing a career reboot after a decade of failure in the British market when I decided to go straight to the American market because, as a bank robber said, it's where the money is when asked why he robbed banks. Each novel should be potentially the start of a series, as in have a sequel in mind. Don't start the sequel, though, when you send the first novel out. Just have notes on it because if the first novel doesn't sell, the sequel is unsaleable. And make the next novel you write the start of a different series in a parallel subgenre. Because if you've had the bad luck to write something that's in a subgenre that's out of fashion, then it ain't going to sell, although it may sell in a decade. So write lots of stuff, write different stuff, mix it up, and keep finishing it and sending it out until eventually something will stick. That is a fantastic place to end, a fantastic piece of advice. Charles Dross, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today and hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me. 18 days. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the 18 days and the five years bit, which I find fascinating. I mean, we talked just before the interview about a 200-word-a-day challenge writer who went from writing one book that took 15 years to writing their second book in in you know a couple of months but five years and 18 days that's quite phenomenal isn't it yeah but you know that did the 18 days did leave him flat on his back for a month recovering so yeah there's always i wouldn't recommend there is always that there is always that kind of counter isn't there to you know there's a thing in coaching we call the wheel of life it's like a circular wheel anyone who's ever done coaching probably knows this and it breaks your life up into all these different segments relationships finance health uh, well-being, uh, goals, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to kind of plot on the wheel where you rate each one, one to 10 today, you pick a day, right? And the idea is they want to see how they join all these dots up and it shows you how balanced your wheel is. Does it look like one of those kind of square wheels from like the uh, prehistoric ages? And my take is that if you ever, you know, you might be doing brilliantly financially in your life, but your relationship might be suffering because you're working too hard. Or you might, you know, you might be um, doing great with your, with your health um, but you know you're not doing great at work because you've been taking a lot of time off. It's always this kind of pull on everything. So I'm not surprised to hear Charles had quite a uh, reaction to that because that's bonkers. 18 days to write a book. Yeah, yeah. But this is, I mean, the thing is, he he's he's writing through adversity. You know, it's just, he was saying that he's not the same writer he was when he started out, and that that always fascinated me, particularly when you're writing a series, because I'm a big. Discworld fan, Terry Pratchett fan, as you know. And it's um I've I've read been rereading some of the later Terry Pratchett's, and they are so different to those early ones. Those early books, great fun, and I love them. And the, the first dozen or so I think are just, you know, just amazing. Brilliant, brilliant books. But they are essentially just parodies of the genre. They have great fun with it. They tell great stories, but they're having fun with genre. Those later Terry Pratchett's are from a different man you know, who is angry about the world. They're funny, they're witty, but they're really insightful. They're, they're really about something in a way some of those early ones might not be. I'm going to get flayed alive by Pratchett fans, but they, they know what I mean. I mean, they're, they're, they're a bit more, um, you know, they're less jokey, you know, uh, but they're no, no less better for that. They're just different. Yeah. And uh, it, it was fascinating. I mean, the whole point that Charles was talking about, series entry points, I think that's something that so few authors actually think about. Certainly in my own experience 
from working in publishing and seeing, you know, where people just can end up just turning out the same thing again. And it made me think, because I'm writing a series now, I'm, I'm two books into a series. They haven't been published yet, but will be hopefully the first one next year. And it's made me think, actually, after book three, book four, if I get there, needs to be a new entry point. How I, So I'm already thinking about that, how I can bring new readers in. Because again, it's, it's, it's so important for publishers, as you said, the marketing people and the salespeople to be able to say, okay, this is more of the same, but we can get new readers in with this one. Yeah. And that's, um, I, and, that's fascinating. And then Charles also, you know, let's get a bit nerdy and geeky because I like a bit of, I like a bit of numbers. But one thing that really jumped out for me was Charles's statistics he mentioned about this idea that you lose 20% of readers typically moving on to book two. And so actually what actually drives the series forward are the introduction of new readers. And, you know, he was talking about, you know, with new readers, you can gain huge momentum, but there's always going to be a drop-off as well. And it's this kind of like counter effect that's happening. And I've not heard it like that before, because obviously we always think of series. The reason why series are so great is they they build and you're not starting from scratch every time with a new group of readers, but it's you're not bringing 100% of readers with you typically. Yeah, there will always be some, some sort of drop-off. But it's one of the reasons publishers love those 99p promotions because they are specifically designed to lure new readers in and say, look, you might not have tried this author before, but give them a go. And once you've got them for one, then maybe they'll buy book two. And of course, with eBooks, you know, we were talking about back to reality being three years old, you know, but if you've never heard of it before and you, and you came to it tomorrow, you're as fresh as a daisy. So same thing for, for anyone writing a series. So they pick up one of Charles's books then there's a whole bunch of others to 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 jump in with. So um, so yeah, it's uh, that that th- it's something published. And of course, indie authors do this all the time. And because they've only got themselves to look after, they're masters of it. This idea that you know you you constantly looking for new readers. And I think I think publishing can learn a lot from the way indie authors do that as mm. well. Do you know? I find I find that ninety nine p promo absolutely understand why people do it and it's it's essential really isn't it to kind of find a new audience but for me it just oh it just feels like it devalues the book so much 99p i mean do you remember the days mr stay when we used to run down the road in our shorts try not to trip over down down the road and line up to get your 99 flake that was in the like the 80s wasn't it where we used to pay 99p for an ice cream and a beautiful flake and and now people are like, when I think about how much time and effort goes into writing a book, it's almost, it's, mm. it's just, I think there should be like a donation page at the back of every book that someone buys. If you like this book now, now send the author 10 quid or $10, because you know what? He spent two years of his life or three years of her life coming up with this. And if you enjoyed it, it wasn't worth 99p. It was worth a thousand times more than that and support the author. I think there should be like a kind of a donation station where you just kind of like support an author to write their next book for you i think a thousand pounds for an ebook might be pushing might be a little a bit, bit. it would be nice but, though <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean this is the thing you, you you do see you know a lot of authors have these kofi coffee coffee accounts and of course patreon accounts as well i, I have noticed in the states it tends to be two dollars 99 promotion now rather than 99 which is going to happen i'll tell you what if you look at the music industry we've always had this conversation about if you look to the music industry you'll get the preview of where the publishing industry is going with regards to books but what we're seeing is 
everything's edging up. You know, YouTube royalties, Spotify royalties, all the pressures being put on the companies that are making, you know, a lot of money. And there's a lot of, lot of great organizations out there fighting for the rights of the artists, of the creators and saying, this is ridiculous. In fact, even Kanye West recently is now like having a right old moan about the music industry and how how artists and creators are not being rewarded for what they create. And I think, you know, the more people that get behind that with any new thing, because we're still in its it's it's weird to say this, but we are in the infancy of the e-book and the e-publishing world. This is in a hundred years we can say, okay, we're now getting to stage three or wherever we're going to be at that point. But but the thing is it takes time. And even though things are changing so rapidly and we're going through like iPhone models, like, you know, like there's no tomorrow. But the point is, is that when you look at the big picture, we're still right at the beginning of this revolution. And every single time at the beginning of the revolution, when there's massive competition, everyone, it's like you said before, Mark, a race to the bottom. We all have to kind of give away free content and free this and 199p that just to try and get, get a lottery ticket into the game. But... The hope for the future is, and with most models like this, what you see is they evolve and they mature and eventually they start to recognize the actual value of what a book should be worth. And I, I mean, I've seen eBooks now that are like 15, $15, 15 pounds. I mean, that's becoming more usual. Whereas like a couple of years ago, you'd think, who's trying to sell an eBook for 15 quid? That's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I'm buying more and more physical copies now than ever because, you know, uh, it's my preferred format, but also, you know, more money goes to the author. It's interesting. I mean, like you say, this in this time more than any other, because musicians were able to rely on revenue from touring. Yeah. And of course, none of them can tour at the moment. Authors used to go to festivals all the time and they they get extra revenue from those. In fact, some festivals could be more lucrative for the author than, you know, a year of a year of book sales uh, via the high street. Because if you're a niche specialist author, if you go to romance festivals or crime festivals or science fiction festivals and you sold your own books, you know, I used to do this at MCM Comic Cons and stuff. I great Yeah, days, you'd you find know. your tribe there, uh, wouldn't you? Exactly. Exactly. And they didn't just buy that book on the day, they buy all your other stuff as well. And of course, that's all close. I'm seeing some things like um, Graham Norton in the UK launched a book this week and he did an event. He did a big launch event at the Palladium of all places. But and but that was, you know, two seats between everyone, you know, so it was, you know, reduced seating and reduced capacity. Um, but that's that's Graham Norton, you know. The most authors aren't going to be able to do that exactly. sort of thing. They can't do their bookshop events. They can't do their festivals. So, yeah, buy it, buy it at full price if you can. Well, folks. one of the one of the challenges I think that that the industry faces and us as authors face as well is that we know that things aren't going to go back to the way they were. You know, once we get to a point where they find a vaccine for for COVID and treatments and the like, and we can kind of have a a, a sense of what we used to call normal pre-COVID. I think so much is shifting because people are getting used to doing things online that I, my, my fear, my fear is that there'll be less of those conventions maybe, or there'll be less of those book tours because people will, and in a good way, we'll discover new and better ways to do things online, which is actually one of the benefits that's going to come out. We're going to be better at doing things online. But I really hope that we don't lose that personal touch. Like meeting an author, for example, is such a uh, a thrill for any reader. I think I think you're going to see 
a more hybrid kind of event. Yes. So you will have that. I think, I mean, when we have a vaccine and we can all go out and hug each other again, you know, it's <laughs> going to be... Yeah, I, it's going to be a massive I, I, orgy, I, really, isn't it? In a, in a well, hugging sense. Yeah, well, in a hugging I, sense. I, I, don't, I don't know what goes on in Canada, <laughs> but um, certainly over here we'll be hugging. We'll be shaking of hands. Uh, oh, hello. Nice to see It's been so long since I've touched your hands. So. Yes. Brilliant. Oh, dear boy. Um, but I think you'll see a kind of, because people now know how to use this tech. So I think you'll have events where, yeah, people will go to Galantz Fest or, uh, you know, literary festivals, sit in a crowd, but there will be people who, who won't feel confident, feel a bit vulnerable, but that I think they will be catered for with the tech. Yes. So- and you'll be able to buy, cause there was, um, I know that there's the London podcast festival who've completely ignored us, um, the London Podcast <laughs> Festival, for example, have been trying events recently where they would have fewer than 100 people in the crowd, but you could buy a ticket to watch it streaming online. And I think that's the kind of future that we're looking at. And that at. actually, you know, do you know what? That is the best of both worlds. And from an author's perspective, that could be huge because – you know, the big question is how can you maximize your reach? How can you, we're doing one event. I mean, our time is really precious. You know, an author doing the book tour, it's, it's, it takes a lot of energy up and you really want to maximize the number of people. So if people are more used to, to, to you know, buying an online ticket and doing that and maybe still experiencing the liveness if you like, if that's such a word, of the event, then it is, I, now. It is now. Absolutely. I think that that could actually be huge because- if it means that everyone can reach more people with the same amount of time and effort, then that can be only good for, for, um, and it means also maybe you don't have to sell as many tickets. Maybe you don't have to hire as big a venue and spend money that way physically, because you know that you're going to be getting a lot more income from that. So, so maybe that kind of event, that hybrid event might become the norm for the future. If it, I've got cogs turning in my head because if all goes to plan, I've got a book coming out next February. And I'm hoping, I've heard that the bookshop up the road where I launched the end of magic will be open again by then, but it would be great to do, you know, get a webcam in there or something, figure out some kind of way to involve more people in it. So anyway, yeah, there we, we go. See. Well, let's, let's put it out to our, to our listeners. If you have, experienced as a reader, maybe an author event that you thought, this is brilliant. This is really clever. Wow. They're really making opportunities here during lockdown. Drop us a note. Let us know. Let us know about it. If you've been actually running one or doing in one yourself, we want to hear about you. Maybe we could do a, a deep dive on that, that very, you know, the new models that are coming out of COVID. It's a whole fascinating area. And you know what I love about this, Mark, it, the wheels never stop turning. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world. Things evolve, things change, things grow despite shrinkage, right? Despite all of this lockdown, things are growing and we're adapting. And that's the resilience of the human race. I think that's what makes me have a lot of hope for the future and um yeah where are we going to be talking about in the fifth year of the podcast who knows the thing that hasn't changed is we love stories yeah so you know if you're we talked to you know i talked with charles about how writers have been coping with the lockdown and the difficulties they've had but people crave stories uh book sales have actually been pretty healthy during lockdown uh netflix subscriptions have gone through the roof you know people people need to make sense of the world and stories are how we make sense of the world so write your stories make your voice heard people
Absolutely. Yeah. And it's what you do as a writer and a reader is so much more than reading and writing. It's, it's a much bigger thing that happens for writers. It's an incredible, I mean, writing has saved people's lives during COVID. It's a, it's an incredible therapy. It's a way of getting everything out onto the page rather than having it trapped in your head. For readers, it's been a massive opportunity to, to have a sense of escapism, to remember, you know, things that they loved and to, to become almost immersed in it within the adventure of a story in their imagination. And I, I think it's wonderful and we should celebrate that fact. Stories are the fabric of society. They really do. So remember that folks, when you sit down to write this week, you're not just writing another page of your book. You're not just writing another idea of your story. You are putting something down that will change people's lives. And you never will know sometimes the context in which that will happen. But understand that you're doing something far, far bigger than just writing. So I really encourage everyone, I mean, on that note, go and get on the 200 words a day and, and make write those yep. thousand words for everyone out there. Start it's, right now. Right now. Right right now. Do it. Right now. It's not now. Now. It's not With just. Pick up the pen. <laughs> actually, just pause the podcast, write your 200 words, and then start playing. We're just going to waffle yeah. about social media for a minute. Yeah. Don't worry about us. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the same old stuff. If you're, if, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm just going to say, if you want to get in touch, we're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment. Look, you've heard this. Yeah, you the, know the you score, know, right? 300 yeah, times. Yeah. Twitter at Bestseller XP. <laughs> Instagram at Bestseller XP. Messaging on Instagram is weird. They just disappear. But, you know, try anyway. Are you writing yet? <laughs> I'm still waffling on about the social media. Pick up that pen, that pen there, and start writing. Yeah, start, okay. Start writing. Write this down as yeah. your first words today. BestsellerExperiment.com. Come to the website, drop us a note. Tell us if anything's inspired you in today's episode. Um, tell us about ideas you've got. Tell us about your experiences of best, uh, the 200 words day if you've been doing it. We want your stories. We'll, we'll talk about those on the podcast over the next few weeks. And if you're interested in finding out more about the Bestseller Academy, which has been now running for a full month, absolutely amazing group of people. We would like to invite you to join the wait list for when we next open the doors. We're going to be making an announcement about that very soon, but you need to be on the wait list. And the sooner you get on the wait list, the more chance you have of getting in because it was completely sold out last time. So get along to um, academy.bestsellerexperiment.com to find out more. And I must just say, Mark, yesterday you did your first craft coaching session and it was absolutely brilliant. Live on Zoom with about 40 amazing writers. Mr. Stay held us, held our attention for 60 minutes with amazing stories. We learned about red herrings. We learned about internal, external conflict. It was brilliant. I loved it. I had such good fun. So much fun. Such good fun. I really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it. Can't wait for the yeah, so if you, bring if it you want a bit more, If you want to find out more of what that is, Mark and I do live coaching sessions within the Academy every two weeks. Uh, that's part of what you get for joining the Academy. So yeah, pop along and find out more. And it's absolutely incredibly insightful. And I must say, I've got to say this again, thank you to everyone who, 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 joined the academy because yes. we've always said the people in the academy just like our patrons and you as listeners as well but it's what you contribute that makes the difference and the knowledge and wisdom you will have as writers is an amazing um contribution and a big melting pot which will make us all better writers and hopefully help everyone to their kind of biggest dreams for writing so thank you for, for being a part of that we were actually uh, amazed and very appreciative of, of your involvement so anyway we have got an amazing couple of uh, podcasts coming up for you, a couple of reruns next week and the two weeks, three weeks from then. And in two weeks time, we'll be joining us for 
our four year celebration, Mr. Snow, will be in two Ooh, weeks, won't it? Goodness yeah, me. Yeah. I can't believe it. So folks Colin the Caterpillar Cake. We'll have to get we'll some Colin the Caterpillar yeah, we'll Cake. Have to get some Colin the Caterpillar Cake. Yes. Yes. So that would be fantastic. And if uh, you'd like to get in contact, pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash contact where you can drop me a marker note. We read every note that comes in. We do try to reply to everyone and we'd love to hear from you. So everyone, we're wishing you well as we go into this winter or fall, autumn or summer, if you're over in the other side of the world from where we are right now. We wish you all an amazing couple of weeks and we'll see you in two. So it's goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Get writing! To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.